Hello, Heat Nation. You're listening to Locked on Heat, part of the Locked on Podcast Heat. Network. Thank Your you for subscribing to Apple and Google Podcasts, Spotify, or Himalaya. My name is David Ramil. It's a Your big show, F-K. a reunion of sorts, perhaps the biggest reunion in Heat history since Dwayne Wade rejoined the team a few years ago. I've got Wes Goldberg on the line, but also friend of the program, Rodan and Carney. A huge show getting both of you guys back together in the middle of this pandemic. First of all, Wes, I know you were just on the show a little while ago, so no need to kind of touch base with you. But, Ron, how are you doing? How's everything everything going with you, and how are you handling things during the pandemic? You know, uh, first of all, I just want to say I'm, I'm really lucky. Obviously, you know, it's easy for me to stay indoors. I can still work. All those things are great. If anything, it's a little scary how quickly I was able to adjust to this new lifestyle. I watch a lot of TV. I cook a lot. You know, I I wouldn't say I'm enjoying it. I miss people, obviously. I miss going places, but I'm weirdly comfortable with the lifestyle. That's okay. I mean, you've got your dog, you've got your your routine, and and as long as you're safe, that's all that matters. So you'll be out out and about soon enough anyway, but for now, and, and please, Save any of your hot food takes for for later on in the show because I'm sure that I will. I will. You. Okay, good. Wes, so is is Rohan the Dwayne Wade of the reunion, and I'm just like what James Jones? Like, what do I do here? Oh, champ! I mean, that's uh, your Parker. Norse Parker. Uh, <laughs> Who else came back? <laughs> uh, Michael Beasley. I mean, <laughs> Michael oh, Beasley. Okay. Yeah. All right. There we go. Perfect. You can be, be the be easy and, and Rowan's the Dwayne Wade. Fair enough. Rowan, I mean, you, you, you want to talk about it a little bit? I, I think my listeners uh, would probably be interested. You, you reached out to Dion Waiters. We were talking about it before we started recording. Um, you mentioned that you had reached out to his representatives and managed to talk about Dion. I, I'm sure my listeners probably don't give a fuck about Dion Waiters because he's no longer part of the team. And, of course, his exit was one they were probably clamoring for anyway. But uh, what was that conversation like, and uh, how is Dion doing during everything? First of all, did you just curse? Can you curse I did, on this yeah. Time? Fuck yeah, wow, you can. Wow, good for Go you. For Whoa. Oh, okay. A lot of things have changed since I left. <laughs> yes. Um, you know, it's, it's always good catching up with Dion. He he finally made it back to uh, Miami, which is great. So, you know, I'm sure it was a crazy time for him. I'm sure it was a crazy time for a lot of NBA players. But, you know, Dion had just arrived in L.A. Then all this stuff happens. He has to get tested. He has to quarantine for a couple of weeks. And then, you know, this whole time, his family, his kids. I mean, he has an eight-month-old kid, you know, back in Florida. So he was finally able to make it back to Miami. Yeah, good catching up with him. It sounds like he's enjoying it. I think the the best part about that interview was Dion Waiters telling me that he makes friends uh, on Fortnite. He said he's like made friends on Fortnite right. and actually met up with them in real life before. And there's something to me incredibly endearing about that. Oh, absolutely. I, I would never have pegged him for for a guy that plays Fortnite. Period. But certainly to, for him to be able to make friends and to meet up with these guys in in person, that's that sounds phenomenal. Sounds I, I, I like can't those believe. are the people on his maturity level too, right? Like he's probably meeting oh, up with like twelve year old kids. And I was like, he's like, hey, Whoa, you guys want some gummies? What is or? wrong with you? You just took this to an absolutely unnecessarily dark place. Yeah, I, I, I hate that every time any content about Dion over the last three months has been posted on Twitter, every response is, oh, is he on the gummies again or something to that effect? And and, and you just lower the level of quality right, of his show. It's a bad by joke. A- <laughs> it was a bad joke. Okay. Set the bar low. That's okay. That's that's the, that's the only go up from here. Yeah, yeah exactly. true. That's perfect. Good, right. good, good out, Mike Good out. <laughs> yeah. 
So, Rowan, the reason why I had you on the show and the reason that Wes was on the show last week was to talk about the best seasons in Miami Heat history because that's kind of the theme for the network in general. And we spoke last week about the 2012-2013 NBA season, but over conversations I've had with Wes and others, it just feels like that, you know, that's expanded a little bit. You can't just focus on the the championship winning seasons because there's been so much in heat history. And I'm, I'm curious because I, I, of all the times that we've spoken, I don't think I've ever quite gotten your origin story as far as your fandom with Miami and where that kind of originated. It really just grew up, you know, it came from growing up uh, in Broward County, you know, uh, you know, yeah. when I was really young, I think some of my first uh, sports memories are watching, you know, Alonzo Mourning and Tim Hardaway back on the sunshine network. I think it was called the yeah. sun sport. Yes. Um, and that was really it, you know, and obviously I think for like a lot of people, uh, around my age, it just, it took off exponentially when Dwayne Wade was drafted. Um, and that first year with him was so much fun. So I, I think it was probably his rookie year where, you know, I really, it was a perfect mix of, I was old enough to appreciate things and, you know, I could really follow uh, the team a lot more closely. I kind of had control over the TV remote, uh, in a way that I didn't before <laughs> in my life. So I, probably from then on is when I was. Really a serious fan, but I mean, some of my earliest sports memories are just, you know, watching the Heat, watching Alonzo in the morning, watching Tim Hardaway, uh, using them in video games, NBA courtside on the N64, uh, you know. So I, I would say that's really where it, uh, it took off slash originated from. Yeah. Uh, you, you share that with Wes, right? Yeah. That, that, uh, it was very similar. I mean, I think we're the same age, Ron, but I think, uh, you know, you grow up, you're aware of Alonzo Mourning, Tim Harley, you watch, you know, games here and there with your parents or whatever. Uh, and then Dwayne Wade gets drafted and it, it was the perfect timing because it was really like that, that age where you, I was not only, you know, appreciating what the Miami Heat were, but what the Dolphins were doing. I think that was like Ricky Williams. 2003 was also the year the Florida Marlins went to the World Series. So there's like mm-hmm. a lot of things mm-hmm. happening in, in sports in South Florida that I was at, right around that age where you really can just watch TV and appreciate it and kind of just be smart enough to understand what was happening and see trends from game to game and be like, oh, Dwayne Wade is the best player here. Okay, I can really like get that and I've never seen anything like this before and this is something very special right that we were seeing so that's why that 2003-2004 team is still like when when you know us on the Lockdown Podcast Network kind of got this prompt a few weeks ago I was thinking about my favorite teams ever and that 03-04 Heat team is way high up I think a lot higher than I think any non-Heat fans would really ever think about nobody thinks about like LeBron's rookie year, right? Nobody thinks about really Melo's rookie year, but Dwayne Wade's rookie year was so special because it really did sort of shift the dynamic and laid the groundwork for so much of what became the Heat. Like, Dwayne Wade becoming a clear star right away kind of put Miami on the map for Shaq. Of course, he ended up getting there a couple years later, and then that turns into a championship-style organization and lays the groundwork for, you know, Pat Riley turning the Heat into a championship team and LeBron James coming and all these things, and it really just all started with Dwayne Wade. Yeah, that's that's a great point. Uh, how how where does the 2003-04 season rank for you, Ron? Because I think one of the things that Wes and I have talked a lot about is how much fun that was, just kind of watching Dwayne Wade's emergence and everything else. Where does it rank for you personally, as far as your your favorite seasons in Heat history? It's high up there. What's funny is, you know, the first championship season wasn't even as exciting as the first Shaq season. Oh, <laughs> uh, agreed. In my opinion, like. The playoffs were obviously a whole different story, but there was something about that first year with Shaq that was really cool. And then that team was a great team, and the title defense kind of shows, but it always felt like they were mercenaries. It never felt like they were a team. Um, it, it was a little different that first year with Shaq. 
But I, I put the T Wade's rookie year even above that one. I mean, it was just so out of nowhere and falling in love with guys like Udonis Haslam. Remember Udonis yeah, Haslam mm-hmm. just coming out of nowhere. Um, and you know, they still had guys like Brian Grant and Eddie Jones then. It was just a perfect mix of those guys who always wanted to get over the hump. Yeah. Plus the new young, you know, Lamar, Karan, uh, D Wade. Yeah. It, it was just a perfect mix of guys who you'd known for so long that you'd always rooted for. And these new guys that were so exciting. I mean, Jonas Haslam, I mean, the guy came out of nowhere. I mean, at least Dwayne was a lottery pick, but I mean, think about that now. It's, it's crazy. And that, that is, you know, it's hard to judge which season you had more fun in during the moment, but looking back now, I look back more fondly on that season than most. What, what was the difference between the, the first year of Shaquille's, uh, you know, joining Miami? Cause I, I'm trying to, I'm struggling to remember exactly what the details were. I mean, I know the roster was kind of overhauled in order to make trades for Antoine Walker and Jason Williams to sign Gary Payne as a free agent. But was it just those tweaks in the roster that kind of made it a little different for you that you thought it was a, a better, purer version, a more fun version of that team in, in 0405 rather than the 0506 team? The 0506 team just got old like immediately when they stepped on the floor. Like it already felt like a rickety team. Whereas that first team, I mean, you know, I think Damon Jones, I think they still had Rasul Butler then too. It yeah. was just, and it, and it was just the excitement. I think Shaq was better that year, you know, as a whole in his first year. I think his second year, especially towards the playoffs, you started to see him not break down, but definitely age a little bit, uh, particularly in the finals. It wasn't like he had a dominant final. So, and also just the newness of it, right? The freshness of it, the excitement of it. Um, you know, Shaq was just coming off a title run. Uh, you know, it, I, I just, I don't know. Again, I think what I would, I wouldn't phrase it as it was more fun necessarily in the moment, but looking back on it, there was something more exciting about that first go around than the second one where, you know, the second year came with the pressure. It came with all the stakes. It came with all the veterans. It was just a whole different vibe around that team. Does a, a championship, is a championship necessary to make a season more memorable or special? I mean, I know this is kind of impossible to answer because everybody is going to have a different opinion one way or the other, but I've always argued with Wes, and I'll give you a chance, Wes, to kind of defend your point of it because I think you've always stated that a championship is the ultimate goal and that's how every season should be defined. But we're talking about Dwayne's rookie season. We're talking about, uh, you know, Shaq's first season with a team, neither of which resulted in a final. And yet everybody would probably argue that the best seasons in quote unquote heat history are, are, you know, those seasons where they won championships. And, and my point is, I don't think that's necessarily the case. Wes, any, any rebuttal on that standpoint? Well, I think, I, I think that my argument was the best teams in heat history won championships, but my favorite mm. teams don't necessarily, they didn't win championships necessarily. Uh, I think the 12-13 team is, is the obvious exception. Uh, but, um, no, I think, like, I think it's all about what your expectations are, but if, if, you know, I think you could put together, and we were talking about this, David, when we were coming out of that championship run where, uh, we were like, you know what, it wouldn't be the worst thing to just sort of have, a, you know, three straight 50, 51 win seasons and just sort of like have a good, enjoyable team and then go to the second round and and out or maybe make it to a conference finals and lose to a better team. It wouldn't be the worst thing in the world as long as they're just competitive. That was always the thing. Um, like those, there was a few of those heat years after LeBron left that they weren't even competitive and it was just not fun when James Johnson was like the best player. But uh, to me, that that to go back to the Shaq thing, though, I remember – after that 03-04 season and that surprising year led by Dwayne Wade, but I mean, that Lamar Odom, that one year Lamar Odom, 
And all of like when we look back, I mean that is if you if you just go by vintage of players, I think that was one of the most underrated players in Heat history. I know he only played one year, but if we're just going by one year sample sizes, that year was so important. Plus, he was like the linchpin of the Shaquille O'Neal trade, which is a big deal. But to go back to Rohan's point about why that first year of Shaq was so important, because there was a real debate about whether or not the Heat should trade for Shaq. Like that was a real thing in South Florida where it's like, hey, we've got Brian Grant, Lamar Odom. This team is like really gelling. They're fun. They're young. They obviously enjoy playing with each other. They made the playoffs. Like what, we should just build on it and see where they can go instead of trading everything for Shaq, um, who may be, you know, going toward the twilight of his career. But then as soon as they make the trade and then as soon as Shaq steps on the floor, it was just obvious that that was the right decision, right? Like then you – because you just see Dwayne Wade and Shaq on the floor together and you're like, oh, no, like that was definitely the right way to go. And they probably should have won two titles. They only won one. But uh, that first year of Shaq was just like – for me also – not being able to stay up late and watch so much of Shaq's prime when he was at the Lakers and being able to do it and, and see him in person with Miami and, and have, you know, there be stakes and me have a vested interest in it um, allowed me to appreciate Shaquille and O'Neal in a way that I never got to either. Is it is it worth pulling off the trade then for Shaq? Rowan, do you, do you agree with Wes that obviously as fun as that you know first season was with, with Shaquille O'Neal, that it's worth it because it eventually resulted in a championship and, and you know, Trading Lamar, trading away Karan, trading away Brian Grant, et cetera, and breaking up that first year of, of Dwayne Wade's team, uh, was it worth it because it resulted in a championship? Yes, that move was worth it. it. I think what the debate comes from is all the things they did after it. Uh, was the second trade worth it? Did they have the right team the year before? Uh, you know, basically they botched the, the years after and then kind of wasted Dwayne's prime. Yeah. Uh, I also want to submit the 2008-2009 season as a really fun season, by the way, just because Dwayne Wade was arguably the best player in the world that season, and you know that was his best year, and that'll always be probably my fondest heat season. But yeah, I, I think the Shaq trade was absolutely worth it. It was more so the moves they made after are where it gets a little bit of more of a gray area. Was that the Sean Marion year in Miami? I think oh, Sean Marion came after 08-09. Um, so was it Jermaine O'Neal trade. then? It was it Jermaine? Yeah, O'Neal? Jermaine O'Neal was on that team, I believe. Uh, oh, he had a rough playoff series against the Atlanta Hawks. Screw Jermaine O'Neal um, forever. Yeah, I'm yeah. sorry. Like, I mean, he's a great, <laughs> great player, great person off the court, and everything else from what we've heard. But uh, you know, that, that I cannot get past that fan version of Dave hating Jermaine O'Neal and wondering why he couldn't even live up to his his measly points per game average. Right when he all he needed to do was average just under double digits, and it would have been enough to propel Miami past that <laughs> shitty Boston team. But whatever. Um, um, I, I take that back. Marion was traded for Jermaine O'Neal. Yeah, that's yes. what it was. Or, or not? Yeah, yeah. Or so yes, he came before. Mario yeah. Chalmers is rookie year, right? Yeah, Michael Chalmers, Beasley, Mario Chalmers. Right. Yeah. Right. Right was on the team then. They waited too long to play Darrell Wright. He was good in that 2010 series against Boston. Yeah. He was the one that got away. Is he, he really was. I don't think so. I don't know how he never made it back in the NBA. He was good on the Warriors. He hit a lot of threes. I, I, still, he still yeah, lives in the Bay Area. Oh, I saw him really? at a, yeah, I saw him at a Waffle House at like, or not even a Waffle House. It was a chicken and waffles place that's open, uh, late in the East Bay at like 2 a.m. Uh, and I think he was in the same state of mind I was at that time. So well, that was pretty cool. I don't, know, I, mean, I don't know how he ever never made it back. Well, I think he was playing, <laughs> I want to say, like, in, in internationally. I, I think as recently think as like last year. Overseas, yeah. Maybe a Turkish league. I, re- I had contacted his wife about something because she's the head of the 
NBA Wives Association, and uh, and I had looked up that Durrell was still playing overseas, but I, I don't know if that's still the case or not. He's only 34. Yeah. Well, drafted right out of high school. He he's the only player that Pat Riley ever drafted right out of high school. And I remember that being a, a major point of contention mm-hmm. at the time, that, that it was the it was reflective of the kind of changing uh, attitudes around the league. And, and uh, you know, I, this was after LeBron, obviously, but no. Yeah, it was. It was after LeBron. And that was, I mean, Darrell White was never quite the player LeBron was, obviously. But it's still kind of, it was such a huge departure for Pat Riley to take a player that young, knowing that in, in that system that he was never going to play anyway. Like, he, he never played much his rookie year. I'm but still just, mad. I'm still mad they didn't take Jameer Nelson because at least he would have played right away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, good point. Although, I mean. Pat Riley always, I think, thought the same thing because the Heat were, like, linked to Jameer Nelson for a long time after that, too. I think that was kind of also one of those guys that he thought, man, maybe I, I probably should have taken that guy. Right. All right, let's let's save this discussion until the next segment. You're listening to Locked On Heat. All right, back with Ronit Carney and Wes Goldberg to go over some of the best memories, best seasons in Miami Heat history. I, I guess we should kind of, as much as I want to talk about seeing Darrell Wright at a chicken and waffle place at 2 a.m., <laughs> I think we probably should talk about I thought about that it. was a good story. I got like no reaction from either of you. No, I, look, I mean, I, I was going to compare it to my okay. seeing Karan Butler at a strip club, but I mean, I don't know if it's. That's, the see, same that's thing. a better, see, no, because that's a better story, and now I feel like my story sucks. So it's fine. I'll just never tell that story again. No, no, I'm curious. Did you see what Darrell ordered at the chicken and waffles place? Yeah, he ordered chicken and waffles. We can move on. It's fine. <laughs> wow, Wes is hurt. I won't tell you what Karan Butler ordered at the strip club, so that's <laughs> that's fair. Um, in any case, uh, looking back at the Big Three era, uh, you know, Wes was on the show last week, and we talked about it a little bit, and I kind of followed up with a, an interview with Eric Reed earlier this week and, and spoke about the Big Three and their legacy. Ron, what, what's your feeling on the legacy of the Big Three? Because Wes brought up a good point that even as recently as last year when they were going through the best teams of the decade – the Miami Heat somehow fall short. Like I don't think a lot of people give them their their due because maybe they were a little disappointing. And and I'm curious what your take on it is because I don't. Were you covering sports full time at that point, or were you still basically just a fan, kind of working your way up? I was so I was not covering full time at that point. I think those teams are considering how good LeBron James was at that time. They're not a flash in the pan. But there's a lingering sense of disappointment. And I, and I remember reading Lee Jenkins' profile of Eric Swolstra after the big three ended. And mm. I remember there's a, you know, I don't know if it's a direct quote from Swolstra, but you know, the way Lee describes it is that they were that team, you know? And for them to go two and two, uh, in the finals ultimately, I don't know. I, considering how good LeBron was and, you know, him and Dwayne have both told me like, they think that losing in the first year was the best thing that happened to them. Like it was, it, it was. It caused the whole organization to rethink their philosophy. I mean, it changed so much about their trajectory. At the same time, winning only two, it just feels like they they should have won more. They could have done more. I mean, they had the player of their generation at his absolute peak, and uh, you know, just Steph already has three. You know what I mean? It's uh, it, it's just so. Looking back on it, you wish they really would have stayed together. Especially considering LeBron made four more finals after that. 
uh, what he could have done if, had he remained in Miami. Because I feel like that team had, had more to offer. I think the biggest problem with that team, too, is, and I, I would hope that the Heat learn from it, like if they are able to go and get, you know, the next superstar in the next couple of years, is it's nice to have Ray Allen and Mike Miller and, and Richard Lewis and all that, but that can't be your entire bench. Because there, that last Spurs series, I mean, LeBron James was still incredible. Dwayne Wade had enough Lewis, in that. Richard Lewis started at center. He did. Yes. Like yeah. they, the Heat were playing with like six dudes, like half the time. And, and Chris Bosch, Dwayne Wade, and LeBron had enough in that finals. They had enough. Even Dwayne Wade, they went through the maintenance program. He wasn't bad in that final, final series, but they just uh, had his no defense. I, I will say his defense. I mean, there were moments okay. where he couldn't, he couldn't run up and down the floor. No, that's, look, that's fair, but like that becomes masked so much more if you have like other young spry players yes, around him. And I true. think that's, that's like true. what, and what the Warriors did in their run was, yeah, they had the Sean Livingstons and the Andre Iguodala's, but they had young guys here and there that could contribute. But it's just like they just completely, they, they kind of took the whole Jason Williams, Gary Payton, Antoine Walker approach. It's like, let's just go get some savvy vets because this worked with us for us to get the last championship. But what they weren't, the difference between the Shaq Dwayne Wade championship was like that was like a two year window, and this was supposed to be like a decade long thing. Like you saw, you you kept hearing Pat Riley all the time saying we want to be the Spurs, we want to be the Spurs. Well, if you're going to be the Spurs, you need to draft better, you need to get young contributors, and you can't just like flex out the bottom of the like the last five spots of the roster every year for whatever 34 year old is willing to take a pay cut. And, yeah, and mean, you had to really build something, and they didn't. Especially in 2014, I mean, Rashard Lewis was playing, but he. I, that was a mistake. Like he shouldn't have been. Right. Mike Miller uh, was gone for the last year, I believe. They amnestied yeah, him. Yeah. Uh, Shane Battier barely played in that last series. Joe uh, Anthony had been traded too. Uh, Ray Allen w- was not contributing. I mean, they they were just at a complete loss uh, for contributors at that point. But I mean, you you look at that though, and. <sighs> They, they, they had planned on retooling in 2014, but of course they didn't have a reason to because then LeBron winds up leaving back to Cleveland. And that's for a whole slew of reasons. You know, that look in retrospect, like it might have been the right decision because I think the goodwill that he built up by bringing a championship to Cleveland probably makes up for anything that happened in 2010 with the decision. But the plan was never to just kind of just they made small changes on an incremental annual basis, but there were kind of bigger picture things that they were looking to tweak over the course of the next three, four, five seasons that they expected LeBron would be on that roster throughout the rest of Dwayne's career. And it just never worked out that way because of LeBron's departure. I mean, I don't know. Well, I mean, they, they, they thought that they were going to make changes, but they signed Danny Granger and Josh McRoberts. Like those were like the things that they did that year. I like the McRoberts signing. I'll, I'll defend that. McRoberts, I was a fan of as well. And if you remember, before, uh, Bosch got hurt and they were, and before McRoberts got hurt, they were playing, they had a game, I think in Dallas where it was like Dwayne, Norris, Luol, uh, Bosch and McRoberts all playing together. And like they looked incredible. And it was like, whoa, like they have something here. And then, you know, McBob got hurt, and uh, which time Chris got hurt. Perpetually yeah. Well, hurt. I think I think I thought the McRoberts thing made a lot of sense too, because you basically have it was a forward-looking move because you actually had like these two forwards who could both play center and both play power forward. They were just like interchangeable. And both good at passing, and they could, yeah. Both awesome passers. You could basically like mirror your offense on either elbow, and it just made a lot of sense. Um, but the like 
the Danny Granger thing was bad from the start. Like he was injured, he was old, he hadn't been good in six years. Like, and that's to me just again, you gotta maybe. And they were they were ultimately obviously a year late on this, but like having to figure out ways to infuse that roster with more talent, maybe because LeBron ultimately looked around in that finals and said, "This is it. I'm going to Cleveland." All right, and we could keep writing this off as he wanted to go back to Cleveland and he wanted to win one for his for his, you know, hometown, all this stuff. And maybe at some point he would have tried to do that, but he didn't have to do it right then and there. And if that thing, if they had a little bit more young talent and just a little bit more stability, a little bit more health, I don't think he goes to Cleveland. And I think that's, if if you were to give Pat Riley truth serum, that would be his biggest regret, would be we should have, instead of building this on a year-to-year basis, if we really wanted to build something that could sustain for a decade, we should have built it to be sustained for a decade as opposed to what we were doing. Well, kind part of, of the problem was they needed to be finding the the Duncan Robinsons then. Yeah, but exactly. The, the pressure was so high that how do you, as an Eric Spolstra, you know, it's, hey, and it's funny. Let me plug a story right here. But Spo told me, I mean, those teams became so much about the bottom line that Spolstra himself lost sight of the fact that his job as a coach is to help develop players. But how do you blame him? I mean, how do you blame him? The pressure was so high. You don't, ha- you don't have the time to develop the Duncan Robinsons. And, no, and I do think that is a, as a fair, it, it's a, it's easier said than done. Let me put it that way. It's a lot easier well, said than done. Yeah. We would have loved to I mean, develop young guys, but they also just don't have that luxury when you're expected to win no matter what. I mean, covering the Warriors now, it's sort of they're in a similar situation where you lose to Toronto. Like, that was sort of their 2014 Spurs, uh, losing to the Spurs. But then the year after, they're lucky that they had all their guys under contract, even though Kevin Durant left, but they still had all these other guys under contract. But they were able to sort of reset things. And so a lot of uh, Warriors fans, like, come at me and they're like, well, why haven't the Warriors been doing this all year, like, the last few years? Like, they could have used Eric Paschal, like, the last few years and all this stuff. It's like, to exact, to, to Rohan's point here, it's, it's when you're managing a superstar team, you have so many, you have such, uh, you have a lot fewer practices. Uh, you don't even like shoot around all the time. You're basically in just like ego management and body management mode until June. And when you're a young team, all of a sudden you have more practices, you have more coaching time, you have more film time, you have all these things. And like all of your team has to be a part of that. You can't just let the superstars sit and let, and, and coach the young guys. It just doesn't work that way. So uh, of course, you're going to be able to develop guys better when you're when they're practicing more because they need practice to develop and they need playing time obviously to develop, but more so I think they need practice and instruction. And the Heat were just never going to be in position to really give them that. So I don't like it is easier said than done, but there there has to be a way to do it, even if it is sort of maybe you take a mulligan year and try to mm-hmm. use that year to flush things out and rebuild things. And I and for all intents and purposes, I do think that that next year with LeBron was going to be that. Uh, whether they liked it or not, that probably would have should have been the move, and probably would have been the move. Well, I mean, I they will still say. they will. They will uh, let me interject. They, they still were able to develop some young players. I mean, they had Mario Chalmers who turned into a quality role player. Norris Cole was a guy they drafted, and he was able to be plugged in there. Like, I mean, maybe those players kind of stood out as decent role players because of the overall greatness of the rest of the roster. But either way, they were still able to develop some quality. They just role traded players. too many of the picks, though. Like they would trade like their twenty seven picks. Yeah, they, no. that was the problem. I thought that they actually drafted. Pretty well, all things considered. Like Norris Cole didn't pan out, but he gave you two, two and a half good seasons. That's all you need, and then you just move on. The next young guy. Um, yeah, I will say to West's point about the practice. So I was funny, funny enough. For time with this, I posted a quote uh, from a Ray Allen interview I did a couple years ago 
uh, while ESPN was re-airing. You're just shameless uh, today, Ron. You're just shameless. I am shameless. Nah, but like, he complained. He com- not complained, but he said, because Lamb just mysteriously walked away from the NBA. Didn't have a last season. Like, after 2014, he just never played again, and it was weird. We thought, is he going to come back? Is he going to sign with the Cavs? What's going on? He said, you know, and Dwayne Wade has said that 2014 year just kind of stopped being fun, and you could see it. I mean, yeah. I was around a few games. Guys were just so worn down. I'm sure it was just the physical fatigue, but also the mental fatigue of being that team for four years, I think, started to wear on everybody. Uh, the mental fatigue of you have to win a championship, I think it just, you know, it, it got old for everybody. And Ray kind of said I, he didn't think the team did a good enough job of handling that. You know, it's funny. They The media then asked Spo about it, and Spoh joked about how he bumped into Ray, and Ray didn't seem mad every time they bumped into each other. But that is interesting to note. Like, it's not just developing the young guys and, and all that stuff, but how much of a role – I mean, the team just can't control the mental fatigue that comes from being in that spotlight. And I think that was also a factor in the reason why it broke up when it did. Yeah, you can't seem, it seems like you just never have enough time while you're in the moment to kind of step back and reassess. Even when you have a guy like Pat Riley who, you know, went through something similarly with a decade long of excellence in Los Angeles with the Lakers and he was never really giving him that opportunity. I guess he thought he'd have more time or that he would be able to just kind of slow down or take that mulligan year, as you said, Wes. But I mean, even like Steve Kerr, went through it in Chicago and then still wasn't able to make those changes. And obviously he's not in control of roster making decisions in Golden State, but just somehow you kind of wind up getting caught up in the moment trying to win as many games, or as you mentioned, kind of just massaging all the the various egos that go into it. But uh, it's difficult. I I mean, I just, I look back and and kind of talking about these, these seasons and these, it's easy to kind of look back and say, well, maybe they should have done things differently, but I just, there's no recipe that works perfectly for building a championship, a championship winning team. So. Yeah. I mean, it's, what's interesting though, is that LeBron managed to go and go to four straight finals anyway. So obviously that mental wear and tear didn't factor into his thing in Cleveland. I don't know if it was just because of the change of scenery, because he was back in Cleveland where he wanted to be. I think that's be. a big part of it. Well, I think a big part of it was that Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving were so young. Oh, and yeah. And that they all of a sudden had so many bodies to go. Like Tristan Thompson. It wasn't the was same team, though. Training. It's like it's it's one thing for LeBron to be able to go through this for eight years, but I don't think you right. can make any kind of comparison with him to anybody else. Who knows? Maybe Michael could have done the same thing during the 90s, but it just never worked out that way because he retired. They, and, and the thing is, like, had the Heat been able to figure out a way – to revamp the roster, would it have even mattered? Or was it LeBron just needing a change of scenery? Was Like, how much of these things... Because, obviously, LeBron was okay. Like, he was fine, and the Heat had LeBron. So, like, ostensibly, you would think if the Heat had LeBron for four more years and put the same... just the same level of talent that the Cavs put around him, that they would have went to four more finals, right? Like, that... I, I think that's a fair thing to say. Uh I don't know if that they would have been able to do it or if that's even true, considering, like, do... Is is what LeBron needed more young talent, more stability, more like a more healthy roster, or do you just simply need that change of scenery or not? Um, it's 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 impossible to say, but I just think it's it's I don't know I don't know well, what I'm saying. Anyway. Well, no, 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 I, I think that's a great point, but I'm I'm wondering then if you're an organization, do you commit to LeBron as being your central figure, knowing let's assume that 2014 doesn't happen, he chooses to stay in Miami, and you think you're going to be able to get the rest of the peak years of his career in Miami that eventually, you know, he'll go to sign in Cleveland, but it'll be towards the twilight of his career. Do you rebuild around LeBron? Do you tweak yes. the roster around LeBron? Are you willing to trade a CB or a Dwayne at that point, just to continue to get those young players that might 
you know, keep fulfilling championship expectations every year? I think I don't think they would have traded Dwayne, but I think uh, they would have traded CB if they had to. But uh, yes, I think Western our agreement. I think that's what you do. Wow. I actually think it was pretty clear in 2014 that you needed to kind of find a way to elevate Chris Bosh into that second banana roll because he was the second best player that in the second half of that last uh, that last year that they were together. I don't. Yes, that's fair. And and but that also then that also in turn makes them the best asset. It's complicated. Yeah, correct. But uh, that would have been without without trading them. Like caveat, you don't break up the big three. I think a big part of it would have been elevating Chris Bosh into a more prominent role, getting him to like continue that evolution to three that did happen just without LeBron. Like would have opened things up completely for him. You got Chris Bosh like full time center, getting you know sixteen shots a game instead of twelve or eleven or whatever it was. Uh, shooting like five threes a game as opposed to two or three a game. And I think you could have like sparked the team that way and given LeBron the space that ultimately Cleveland provided him to go like full blown like LeBron death mode. But it would have been, uh, interesting to see if the Heat could have done that with young players, which I think is what I kind of keep coming back to. Absolutely. All right. We'll get into some more thoughts on the best seasons in Miami Heat history next. You're listening to Locked on Heat. Remember to listen to and subscribe to new and archived episodes of Locked on Heat on Himalaya, as well as on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts. If you're in iTunes, please leave a rating and review, especially if it's a good one. We've kind of just, we've talked about it in bigger picture type topics here. I guess we just really haven't gone into the minutia of those championship winning seasons. Uh, you know, this is, awesome. you know, again, the reason why I invited both of you on here, but, uh, you know, Ron, you were, you were tweeting pretty uh, angrily, passionately about the 2013 NBA Finals. Do you have any overall thoughts about how that series played out? I, again, I keep coming back to that interview with Eric Reed, but he mentioned that it, he thought it was the best series in Heat history, probably even one of the best series in NBA history. What are your overall thoughts on that matchup between the San Antonio Spurs and Heat? That series gets lost because of the Warriors-Cavs 2016 series, which I get, which was Probably better just because of the last three games and the way everything went. But I agree. Spurs Heat still probably like a top five series of all time just because the talent on the floor. Obviously, you know, they traded blowouts uh, for, I think, you know, three or four games there in the middle. But just an epic series. And seeing LeBron without that headband and the desperation in him, knowing that he can't lose another finals, like... right. What's interesting about the second half of LeBron's career is, especially after he won those two titles in Miami, is he's been playing unburdened, which is fun to see. You know, it's fun to see LeBron just in full mastery of, you know, his IQ, his skills, and he's playing like a little more carefree without the pressure that came, you know, in the first half of his career that came in 2007 and all that stuff. But in that moment, when there was that pressure and just... When was the last time we saw him that desperate? You know, I think that in that 2016 series, it was determined. It was, I've done this before. It was, you know, the pressure's not on me. The pressure's on them. But I, I think that 2013 series, that game six, especially that fourth quarter stretch when the headband came off was a, a desperation in LeBron. We've seen so rarely since. And that's what made it just so perfect and so memorable. And I, I think people lose sight of that a little bit when they, when they think about that series. 
you uh you mentioned your interview with Ray uh, uh, earlier in the show. Uh, you know, he gets asked about the shot a lot. Do you think the shot has kind of just overtaken how good this series has been? Like if we boil it down to that one minute, you know, twenty five seconds or whatever. And at the same time, it's like we we often forget, or I think most people, even more casual fans, forget that they had to go into overtime, that they had to fight a, a game seven just to change. You know, to yeah, game be- seven was that, game seven was a classic. Yeah, it was a great one. A really good yeah, back and forth I, and matchup. I agree. There's there's definitely not enough love for that game seven. That game seven was incredible. That's actually a really good point because we all just think about, oh, the shot. It had like the greatest moment in NBA Finals history. But I think pound for pound, that was the best series ever played. Uh, I thought that the 2016 Cavs coming back down from 3-1 just had so much drama to it. That was obviously incredible. But just from a basketball viewing, like just a – Every possession was just unbelievably well played. It was just peak Miami Heat. Like, that Miami Heat team, I would put up against any Cavaliers team. Like, absolutely. Oh, because without, of a, how doubt. Much without that, a doubt. Like, that's it's, it's funny you should string. mention that. Like, it perhaps was, somewhat fortuitous. Like, today in Bleacher Report, and I'm recording this on a, on a Tuesday, they, they show the best lineups in, in NBA history and the big three era heat. I think they ranked 12th overall. And now Andy Bailey, who, who, who wrote about the piece, he used net rating and some other statistics there to kind of come up with these best teams. But the did. heat, yeah, no, neither of them, uh, neither, neither version of the big three roster or starting lineup specifically ranked within the top 10. And I think that's just, it doesn't tell the full story. Now he said that he included, some points or rewarded points for like teams that won championships, et cetera. But somehow I just, I don't, it, maybe it's because Udonis Haslam started so many games. I, I was, you know, going through the series now and talking about best seasons. I was kind of shocked to remember that Udonis started as many games in 2013 as he did. Can either of you ballpark guess how many games he started that 12, 13 season? 22. 22. Rowan? 41. 59. Oh, Jesus. There we go. Well, I will say I think Spo's favorite lineup was Rio, Wade, LeBron, UD, Bosch. I think that he's often said that the defensive chemistry of that lineup uh, was, I think, you know, some of the best defensive chemistry he's ever had. So that doesn't completely shock me just because of, you know, Udonis was, I think, the nominal center at that point, too, because Bosch didn't want to play there full time. Uh, it's not that shocking to me just because I know Spo really loved that lineup. But I always I think still, of Shane Battier yeah. like starting so many of those games. Maybe well, that's the lineup. That 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 Battier in 2013 versus Battier in 2014 are two different people. But I think that that is the lineup I think about, and is the lineup I would put up against any lineup of this decade. And like, they, I mean, the Battier lineup would come out a lot in the playoffs. Yes. Yeah. Like that's your that was the original death lineup, right? Like when we talk about like Draymond Green yes. playing center stuff, like yes. that was. And it was not because they had Chris Bosh playing center, because he was a center who could do all the things. And I will always say that Chris Bosh was the first, like, small ball center that we use in these days. And people are like, oh, well, Phoenix started with Amari Stoudemire. Phoenix didn't have Amari Stoudemire switching on to guards, okay? They had right. Amari Stoudemire, who's a power forward, playing center and dropping to the basket. Chris Bosh would guard point guards on the perimeter. Like, it was insane what he was doing. And I think that he was... Like, I don't I don't know how we... Like, he was in that 2014... Fi- or the 2013 finals was among the most viable defensive players that we've also had in the decade. Like that he had a huge block on Tony Parker in overtime oh, yeah. in game six. Oh, absolutely. And it was just like uh <laughs> that that to me is having Shane Battier slide over to power forward and or being like, you know, switching with LeBron at that four spot and having Bosch at the five and then just having shooting all around the floor. 
it was just like such a transformational lineup for if we give like guys like Steph Curry credit for just like being influential, then we should give that lineup credit, Andy Bailey, for being influential because that lineup certainly was. All right. I've kept both of you here too long, so I'm just going to shoot some quick questions your way very quickly. Best or slash favorite role player of the big three era. Rowan, let's start with you. Mario Chalmers. Mario Chalmers. Forever right. and always. Well. Stole my answer. Stole my answer. I have a brand to protect on this podcast still. It's uh, it's definitely Mario Chalmers. But if I have to go a second just for the sake of diversity, it would probably be uh, – I feel like I'm going to leave somebody out. But I really did enjoy watching Shane Battier that, that, that year. I'm going to go with Mike Miller. Mike Miller. Mike Miller. <laughs> One, two, three. Yeah, all right. Uh, the correct answer is actually Greg Oden, but let's move on. Uh, most <laughs> annoying opponent during the big three era? Go. Uh, Wes, let's start with you. Oh, my God. Uh, announcers that loved verticality. I talked about this on the last show that we did, David. I thought verticality was the most overrated thing. Like, just jumping up and down was, like, some, like, revolutionary idea, and it was, like, the whole thing during the playoffs, like those two years against the Pacers. So I'll just say the notion of verticality was the most annoying thing. Okay. I'll Rowan. say the, the, the Bulls regular season. Yeah. Uh, because no matter who was playing point guard, they were going to win. Um, <laughs> and then I'll say the Pacers were the most annoying playoff opponent because at least the Celtics had really good players. And the Pacers did too. Don't get me wrong. I love David West. Paul George, obviously a great player. It just didn't make sense. It just like, right. how is this the team? Why is this the team? Are you kidding me? Them again? But, Verticality and Roy Hibbert, that's yeah. the reason why they were the yeah. challenge that they were. All right. Follow-up question. Most player you'd like to punch the most in the face, Lance Stevenson, Joachim Noah, or yes. Brian Cardinal? Go. Lance Stevenson. Lance Stevenson is high and close. Still, to this day. I won't, right. even, I won't talk to him for interviews or any story I ever have to do. I won't do it. Ron? I'm gonna have to go Brian Cardinal. That whole Mavs team. I mean, Ian Mahinmi was killing them. Cardinal was killing. It just, yeah. Don't get me started. That Mavs team. Oh man. Yeah, I rewatched game ele- uh, game six of the 2011 series, and Cardinal like clotheslined Chris Bosh under the basket. He was just a dirty prick of a player. So that the, the trash or what the garbage man really applies to him. Uh, last question: Was the big three era disappointing? Ron, go. It's not a yes or no question. It's, it is. Uh, it has to be. Go. A little disappointing, yes. All right. That's hedging. Bittersweet. West. It's bittersweet. It's bittersweet. Wes? No. Not disappointing. All right. Cool. I okay. had fun. All right. Yeah. <laughs> I think that's it. I mean, yeah, it was a lot of fun ultimately talking about it and kind of going back and looking at those fantastic teams. They provided some great moments. Before I let you both go, Ron, as always, do you have any kind of food takes to share with my audience? I do. I do. So obviously, you know, a lot of us are staying at home right now. You're wondering, how can I stretch meals? You're trying to limit the amount of times you go to the grocery store. I know myself, I'm trying to go no more than once a week, ideally even less. Let's reintroduce yourself to your old friend, Instant Ramen. Okay. Listen, I've been making a lot of dishes with the noodles, but here's the key. Okay. Don't make the noodle soup. Don't make it according to the package instructions. Just boil your noodles in water, okay? Cook the noodles, and then and then you've opened yourself up to a world full of possibilities. You know, maybe put a little soy sauce and sambal in a bowl, dump the noodles right on top, mix it through really quickly. You have a nice little salty, spicy snack. Maybe you have some miso lying around in your fridge. I mean, you could find miso in most supermarkets these days. A little miso butter noodles. Throw some eggs on there, get a little protein. 
uh, some scallions, maybe some cilantro, some kind of green over the top for freshness. But it's a great, you know, late night snack, a great, you know, uh, lunch. And yeah, I just reintroduce yourself to ramen noodles. Don't worry about making it to the package instructions. Throw that seasoning packet in the garbage, save it uh, to dust on top of some fries or something like that. But, you know, get creative with your noodles. Uh, there's so many ways to use them. Uh, you know, make stir fries, add vegetables, you know, use different sauces. Uh, that would be my recommendation. Uh, they're very cheap and you can, you can get a lot of, you know, satisfying meals out of them. Interesting. Wes? Uh, that is like right up my alley. That is one, that was one of my college meals was I would get the instant ramen. I would throw away the little chicken seasoning packet and I wouldn't boil it. I would do a dry ramen, just like the noodles, right? You just boil them up. You pour the water out or whatever. And then I had this Thai peanut sauce, like the spicy Thai peanut sauce that I would just throw onto the noodles, crack an egg, scramble that real quick, throw that on top. And that was like a go-to college meal for me. Interesting. I've never tried yeah. it. I've never been a ramen guy. I don't know why. I just never, I never needed to buy it. I guess I was very lucky. I didn't have to buy ramen all the time when I was in college. So it's never worked out that way for me. But th- th- those are fantastic recommendations. And thank you to both of you for coming on the show. Great times kind of catching up with both of you and, of course, talking about some great seasons in heat history. Uh, on behalf of all my listeners, stay safe, both of you. But uh, unfortunately, got to wrap it up. That's it for today. You can connect with me on Twitter using the hashtag AskLOHeat or email me at LockedOnHeat at gmail.com. I'm David Romel signing off and thanking you, as always, for your support. Yeah! Oh.